Hey, and welcome to futurethinkers.org, a podcast about the evolution of technology, society, and consciousness. I'm Mike Gilliland. And I'm Yuvia Ivanova. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, popular episodes, and to join our community, go to futurethinkers.org slash start. Cool, Richard, welcome. It's nice to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I'll do a little bit of an introduction for those who are unfamiliar with Richard. Uh, Richard D. Bartlett uh, is a co-founder of a digital tool called Lumio and a decentralized consulting company, The Hum. He is also a director at the Inspiral Foundation, which is a collective of people um, working on meaningful projects around the world. He writes about how we work together at any scale from our relationships to organizations to social change. And he's a contributing author for the book, Better Work Together. And he's writing his first book uh, called Patterns for Decentralized Organizing. So today um, we're going to be covering a lot of those subjects. And uh, I know that you're also an open source enthusiast. So uh, a lot of uh, rich, points to start with in this Q&A. For for anyone wanting to contribute questions, um, we have a Google Doc going. So if you're on the Zoom call, uh, there's a link in the chat. And if you're just watching on YouTube, uh, you can uh, pop them in the YouTube chat as well. And we'll we'll see if we can get to those. I haven't seen anyone in the YouTube chat indicate that they can hear us and that everything's live. So. Okay, looks like we're good. All right. All right, so um, yeah, why don't we start? Mike, do you have a starting question that you'd like to begin with? Sure, well, you know, we're building the smart village um, in the Kootenays in British Columbia, and we're already um, encountering kind of unexpected governance questions. Um, it's been kind of hyper-centralized for the first little while as we try and get this vision um, off the ground. And we want to figure out what are the principles of decentralization? Um, what can we build into this from the very beginning? Um, I, I guess I have to give the disclaimer that uh, like I'm really strongly opinionated and biased and um, it, it's really hard to tell the difference between what's my insight, you know, from the experience that I've had from what's just my personality or like the way that I would like things to be, you know? So like I can, I can give my suggestions about what are principles and it's probably going to be about 50% like actual design principles and 50% just like my, my reality. And it's really hard to know which one of those is which. So there's this kind of filtering process we have to do. I I think that, um, I feel like we're kind of in an emerging field of looking for new ways of working together. And that in that process of emergence, it's really unstable. It's like, there's not, I don't really believe that there's a, a like a framework or a blueprint that you can say, ah, oh, you know, just do this. Like this is, this is really going to work. Um, I think it's a process of discovery, you know, like it's a, it's a really um, highly subjective and context dependent enterprise like trying to design what are the right structures and practices and culture for a group and i'm actually quite suspicious of anyone that has a comprehensive system you know like i'm i'm really in favor of systems that are treated like scaffolding you know that it's like okay we're going to have this kind of clumsy structure that at least helps us along the way but it's not the finished product my 
opinion. The, you know, I've been working with decentralized organizations for about 10 years now, and the ones that are going really well, they seem to be, yeah, quite unique. You know, like they're really, they've, they've evolved into their local context with their people, with their culture, with the, um, yeah, with, with all of those unique contextual variables taken into, into consideration. And so it's really difficult to be able to sit back and say, okay, what do they have in common? Or like, what, what are the key principles that you have to have in mind? And, and it also depends, part of that contextual thing is like, who are you, you know, and what, um, where are you at in your own developmental journey? And where are your collaborators at? And, and so like, depending on where you are on that path, um, the principles are different as well. So it's, it's like all of this to say it's a highly, highly subjective answer. And maybe the simpler answer is when I'm coming into an organization and trying to help it along its path, I'm looking at two things. And the first one is about, I, I think of it like the social fabric, like where are there points of tension? Where are the obstacles? Where are there like, thin spots or tight spots where are the knots and uh, where's there like a resistance uh, in people's relationships and what why is it there <laughs> and what can we do to like massage those knots out and and get it um flowing again get the relationships flowing again so there's this whole um you know massive body of work around how do you create an environment where people can communicate openly and honestly with each other where they're not running some kind of complicated game of like um trying to exploit each other or manipulate or like hide parts of the truth and do this weird kind of risk management or impression management. Like how do you actually get an environment where people can just share the information between each other in the same way that like computers share information on the internet, you know, that they're just like, I'm a node, I have some information here, it is for you. And now we're going to process it together. Like (laughs) um, most of us are not raised to communicate that way. You know, most of us have got a lot of, conditioning that gets in the way and, and it takes a lot of work to um yeah cultivate enough trust enough psychological safety enough emotional intelligence enough self-awareness um to to open up that kind of communication and so there's there's like yeah you could you could choose any one of those topics and spend a lifetime developing your expertise in that um so we go on for a long time but i mean that's like that's half of the picture for me is just developing relationships of trust and open communication and then the second half, because I said it's emergent and we don't actually have really strong uh, best practices. I think we have some best practices, but we don't really have a, a, a full framework that I can recommend. The second half is about doing experimentation and, and it might be very rapid experimentation. So like um, if you know, you're in the context of like you're living together in an intentional community, then I'd be running experiments every week. Like, and, and there's a process of going, what's the most urgent tension that we need to pay attention to right now? Like what's the one or the two most urgent tensions we need to pay attention to right now? And what's something that we can attempt that's gonna um, just make one step of progress in the right direction. And then we'll see what we learn from that experiment. You know, it's um, when you're working in a complex system such as an intentional community in a physical ecosystem, you know, there's so many interactive factors there. You can't really predict what's going to happen. You know, you say, okay, why don't we try this, this new decision-making system or this new budgeting system? Like you don't actually know what's going to happen and you can get some good advice from different people that have shared experience, but you just can't predict how it's going to go. And so the best thing to do is um, 
this kind of, you know, what do they call it? Like doing these probes, sense and respond, take a little act and then, and then reflect. And so it's really developing a, uh, a shared practice, a shared habit of always being in, in experiment mode, knowing what experiment we're testing and closing those feedback loops. Okay, we tried this, did we learn something? What's the next thing? So those are the two. And then um, it's like on both of those pillars, there's so much uh, detail and depth, you know, and I guess um, we, can, we can dive into that with some of the more questions that are coming up. To build on this, um, with the Smart Village project, there's been a sort of crew that's formed around it of people that want to support in uh, like different levels and in different types of participation. So whether it's like living at the village or advising or investing or starting a project at the village. Um, and then outside of that, there is like a larger congregation of people that also want to support um, at, at, at a different level. And that's like a wider community, right? And so there's people from both of those levels likely in this, in this call today. And, um, and so we're starting to ask questions about how can we be mobilized and empower these, this community to, to, be, to be mobilized and um, to contribute and to collaborate and to communicate with one another um, in, in a way that is maximally supportive to Mike and Yuvi, who are the leaders and the coordinators, right? And then also that allows a sort of dynamic hierarchy and collective choice making and that, that collaboration to, to emerge. And so sort of what I'm wondering is um, some of the like low risk experiments to run with allowing some more of that, that community in to, to contribute and collaborate and some more of that self-organizing. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and some just maybe digging into what are some of those experiments that we can run early to to mobilize the crew. Um, do you mean to mobilize the people that are engaged, but with not such uh, with without without such a huge stakeholding that they're like in it, but not committed in the same degree? Yeah. So Mike and Yuvi, of course, are the the largest stakeholders and yeah. like taking the risks and pioneering the project, and then other people um are clearly coming and wanting to contribute and so i think it's a sort of interesting um territory to enter now is like okay how do we create projects and opportunities and containers for this community to contribute and to create here in mm -hmm. in in this open source kind of way um yeah, yeah. um so i mean i think there's a general principle of governance you know, not just decentralized governance, uh, which is like knowing who are the different classes of stakeholder and that the different classes of stakeholding have different rights and responsibilities and they have a way of sort of identifying, like you kind of know where you stand um, and that, yeah, that there's kind of an appropriate balance of power. That's kind of like, I think, a yeah, essential ingredient of any kind of governance design. Um, and, and often what we encounter with groups that are trying to be more collaborative is this bias towards inclusion, you know, like um, often it's coming from, I've had really bad experiences in traditional hierarchies that are too exclusive and I don't want to repeat that. So I'm going to be much more inclusive and welcome. And it's like, let's co-create it and we'll make it open source and everyone comes in. Um, and in that context, it can be difficult to 
name where people stand and to say like, well, some of us, uh, like everyone's participating, but some of us are committed. You know, some of us are, have skin in the game. Some of us, are, whether that's like a financial stake or it's just like a, you know, like a sense of moral ownership or, a, um, you know, who's losing sleep over this thing. You know what I mean? Like that, that there's a kind of a threshold there um, about who's losing sleep. And it can, it can be really a, a sort of sensitive issue to be able to distinguish that like there is a threshold between participation and commitment. And um, it's helpful if you can name it. And I think, I mean, from what I've heard so far of the Smart Village project, it, it's really obvious the Mike and Ubis thing, you know? So I think that's actually a really healthy starting point. Um, but it's also obviously intended to be something more than that. You know, it's not like a whole bunch of people coming over to your house to help you out. It's like trying to do something communitarian and um, with a collective attitude and open source and mutual and all this sort of stuff. So there's got to be some kind of um, transition or like a, a kind of decentralization. I mean, the reason that I talk about decentralized organizing rather than uh, non-hierarchical organizing is I think of decentralization as like a process of going from the center and pushing it out, you know, um, and that there might be multiple centers and that the centers are uh, constantly losing their density, you know, that there's this, this process, but it's not a, it's not, I don't have a, a, a picture in my mind of like, there's no centralization. There's no, you know, there's no strict hierarchy or something like that. It's more like um, moving the power out and finding how to do that in a way that's actually pragmatic, you know, in a way that actually you're sharing authority with people in a way that, um, yeah, supports some kind of common vision, you know, that actually gets somewhere and that um, honors people's investment and their expertise. And that's, yeah, like I keep saying, it's kind of complex and subjective, you know, it's, um, so, what are some specific experiments you can try? Um, my first gesture is just to name, like I say, have, have different classes where people will know like, okay, I'm a founding partner or I'm a enthusiastic volunteer or I'm a, um, you know, interested uh, supporter on the sidelines. Like if you can name that there are these distinct places and that you get escalating rights as you take on ex escalating responsibility. And then, as you have escalating rights, you should also have escalating accountability, you know, like that there's actually um, expectations on each other of like, okay, if you're going to have this influence, then we should be able to have an opinion about how you're behaving. Um, but yeah, one of the first things that comes to mind, just given the context that you're in, is just doing interesting and fun things with money. Like, um, I'm guessing there's quite a few people in the community that are sort of like, interested in crypto and like the possibilities of, of decentralized finance and these kind of things. Like um, that's just what pops up. It's like, uh, are there ways to, yeah, for people to invest and, and to choose like what parts, you know, this, the, the vision that I've heard is so um, fertile, you know, like there's so many different ideas that could happen. And like, if people could buy in in a way and actually put, um, some of their stake behind different ideas and you could build sort of collaborations around that. I mean, that's something that we do in the Inspiral Network uh, where everyone at a much smaller scale that like we're not trying to um, build a multi-million dollar project on the ground somewhere, but we have a couple of hundred people that share a small fraction of their income into a collective uh, fund. And then we have different kind of participatory budgeting processes to allocate where that money goes. And that's really interesting. You know, it's really compelling. It's like, Hey, I want to do this project. It's going to cost 5,000 euro. Can I get the support from the community to do that? Um, that's a really, 
it's a really meaningful way to engage people. You know, it's, it's more than, um, it's more than this kind of like feeling engaged or feeling empowered. It's actually like quite concrete. Like when I come up with a cool project that I think it would support the community and they pay me to do it, it suddenly becomes a real priority for me. And I can see the influence that I'm having and that that's super engaging. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, bring up an article that you wrote that relates to this called Hierarchy is not the problem, it's the power dynamics. And there you distinguish between uh, three different types of power. Um, the power from within, power with, and power over. And I think that's a really useful uh, thing to address before we go any further. Would you like to elaborate on that? Sure. That, um, the distinction between power with and power over comes from Mary Parker Follett who's like the most futuristic organizational designer who just happened to be around in the 18th century. Um, it's amazing eh, when you discover these things in history, there's so much of this stuff that's really ahead of its time. Um, and her distinction was to say that, okay, there's a thing called power over, which is about domination. Um, and, and in my own sort of theoretical framework, I really rely on Rian Eisler's work about partnership versus domination, that this is the main spectrum um, that, human relationships tend to fall one way or the other. And we're in a world that's characterized by relationships of domination and we're trying to push them in the direction of partnership. Um, so the, the power over is a domination relationship. It's just, um, you know, some of you might've had this experience with your teacher maybe or your boss where there's like someone who has coercive authority over you and they call the shots and you either do what you're told or you're gonna face negative consequences. And most of the people, when they're talking about um, self-organizing systems, decentralized, non-hierarchical, et cetera, what they mean is I want to be in an environment where no one has coercive authority, where there's no one using their power over someone else. Um, and that's my commitment. You know, that's why um, if, you, if you really push me and I had to choose some kind of political affiliation, I'd always choose some kind of anarchist because of that focus on coercion and freedom and autonomy. Um, that's the essential thing. And there we go. This is my own personal story coming up, you know? Um, so there's the, the, that's the, the power over dynamic. And there's, it's really common that people have a shared agreement of like, yeah, that, we don't tolerate that. We don't want that here. We're looking for new ways of being where um, there's something more equitable and more fluid. Um, but then you have this thing called power with, and that is, it's kind of related or in the same ballpark as like, reputation, trust, social capital, um, how much weight your voice carries in a group because of how people know you. And it's the this, it's this social power um, that lives in our relationships because of the specific context of, of how we know each other and the, and the experiences that we've had together. So like in the Inspiral Collective, um, I've been there for 10 years and people know me, you know, there's a critical mass of people that know me and they've seen how how they, they, they know something about my character and they know um, something about my personality and they know how to read me. And so when I say something, it lands in a different way than someone who just showed up last week, you know, like um, th that I've got a distinct role in that group because I've just got a lot more of that social power than someone who's brand new and hasn't built up that trust yet. And this, in my view, is universal across human groups, this experience. Um, and when you're in a group that's trying to be decentralized and you, most groups don't have that kind of language to be able to distinguish power with from power over, 
um, there's this real shock and it often causes a lot of tension and conflict and drama in a group is that you're like, wait a minute, I thought we were non-hierarchical, but Rich has got way more influence than this new person that just showed up. What's that about? You know, it must be coercive. There must be a problem here. We must, you know, tear him down and scrutinize him. Um, and I'm, and I mean, I'm usually the one tearing that the other powerful one down. It's not like I'm, I'm complaining here. Uh, this is a really extremely common source of, of tension in groups. And in my view, it's because we don't have sophisticated language for distinguishing between these different categories. Um, and so the remedy for that is, well, can we talk about it? And so um, we try to make it safe and okay for people to talk about the power dynamics that they experience, like how much influence do you feel like you've actually got here? And when do you feel like you're being obstructed? And when do you feel like you're being encouraged and lifted up? Um, and then, yeah, the third category, just to, just to complete that is, yeah, we call it power from within or empowerment. And that's, that's like confidence. It's like um, that... I think of it as, I mean, it's really closely, I think, related to sovereignty that a lot of you, your sort of crowd will be into. It's the sense of like, I, I stand up for what I know is right. You know, my voice matters. Um, my ideas are worth sharing. Um, I've got an, in, an inner compass. That's the ultimate decision maker for me. I don't seek um, external, like I seek external advice and engagement and care and you know I'm in relationship with others but that like there are some decisions that I need to make based on my own interior um, condition and my own interior sense making and that's power from within and you can't give that to someone and this is I mean I never use the word empowerment for that reason because um, I find it really condescending and 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 um, sort of patronizing you know as if I can give you your sovereignty it's like no you've already got it um, I can stop trying to undermine your sovereignty I can stop, uh, I can remove some of the obstacles, you know, I can be more respectful, I can be more encouraging. So I usually say encourage rather than empower. Um, because yeah, we can we can give courage to each other. I really believe, I mean, I think that's where courage comes from. I think courage is a social process of encouraging. Um, but I really don't like the, the, the mental image that I get when I hear empower as if I've got power, I'm gonna give it to you. Like, here you go, please use it wisely. It's like, no, you've already got it, but I can, um, what, I mean, one of the things that I'm trying to do in a group is show what it looks like to be empowered, you know, like show what it looks like to exercise your power from within with, with consideration and care and also with a, a, like a fundamental commitment to my own sovereignty. We were talking about this last week and we were, we've kind of came across this analogy of being in traffic, driving a car and like one on one side, one lane, someone wants to get into the other lane. So you don't just wait for people to open up without indicating that you want to do anything. You signal and then people by a matter of courtesy will make that space when you've signaled, but without signaling, you're not going to get anywhere. And it's kind of funny that that expectation with empowerment is that you're almost waiting for people to give you the mic instead of indicating that you will have something to say and that you would like to go next. I think that's an important thing to be able to have that somewhat like you could maybe call it aggression or maybe call it uh, um, maybe aggression is the wrong word but that ability to just stand up and say that you want to contribute in some way mm. yeah i call that assertiveness yeah yeah great yeah i also think it's it's really a really good point to observe that uh you know in the power of whiz category people can still have influence, status, rank, reputation, clout of some kind. 
Um, and to say that, you know, no, we're all equal, it's kind of throwing out the baby with the bathwater because, you know, somebody who just learned about a subject obviously shouldn't have the same authority as somebody who has been studying it for 30 years and has a PhD in it, you know? They're, these things are obviously different. So when, when people kind of choose to flatten everything and, and say, oh, there's no hierarchy, then that hierarchy still comes out in really toxic ways. And you mentioned that in the article, and we've noticed this too. You know, we attended a decentralized uh, governance conference, and there was, you know, this constant effort to make everything flat and non-hierarchical. But you know, obviously, some people just had more experience, or they were just more, you know, more masculine and kind of more assertive, and they ended up speaking for way longer than everybody else. And then, but the language was like, oh, actually we're all decentralized and we're all equal. And there was this very obvious kind of um, difference between what was being said and what we were actually observing. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a reaction against um, the context that we come up in, right? Like, um, like I said, people, most people have a pretty clear image in mind when I talk about a toxic hierarchy, you know, this top-down command and control constraining thing. And we're like, oh, we don't want that. You know, like we know that thing really clearly, but we don't, most of us don't have really clear images of an alternative that we actually want. It's more imaginary rather than like a lived experience of like, I want that thing. You know, this is the, this is the new, um, the new paradigm that I want to be living in. Most people don't have that much clarity. Um, and so we have these imaginary, you know, we use these metaphors of like horizontality or being flat or being non-hierarchical, but those are metaphors. They're just images, you know, they're, they're not actually, um, it's not embodied knowledge. And so usually when people are trying, they, the, it starts out a bit clumsy. And um, so I'm looking for, I mean, this has been a lot of my quest for the last few years is looking for really excellent models that we can say, look like this, like point to that. Um, and just in the everyday sense, one that's been really strong for me and really present now for quite a few years is in so many uh, cultures that I've visited around the world, people understand hospitality and that there's a power dynamic in the, in, in the context of hospitality where you have a host and a guest. And this um, I know from, you know, like I grew up in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is uh, unceded indigenous territory. And so like I've learned, a little bit from being from growing up alongside indigenous people about um, how much of their way of making sense of the world revolves around this concept of whose land are you on you know who's the host here and who's the guest and and you don't have to have an indigenous context to understand hospitality you, you know there's most part most parts of the world you can go and you know that like when you're a guest in someone's place like you kind of follow their direction, they kind of set the context, they set the rules, but also good hospitality is about serving the guest, right? It's not, it's not like a self-serving uh, extractive or like abusive relationship. It's like this really generative giving one. So I think a lot of people can, can kind of latch onto that and see um, a model of a kind of power dynamic that's actually really healthy, especially, you know, especially if there's turn taking, like, if you're always coming to my house and enjoying my hospitality, well, eventually I'm going to want to reciprocate and say, like, can we can we go visit you now? And we take turns, you know. And if 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 there's a um, a chance for us to each take our turn of saying, like, I'm the host for a while, um, that to me feels really healthy. And like that there's a 
a kind of uh, nutritious flow of different experiences, people taking turns and they get to learn from each other and exercise that muscle at different times rather than it being, yeah, like a permanent sense of like, I own this and you must all submit to me. Like that, that doesn't feel very healthy to me, but the turn-taking does. And that, I mean, that has been probably the main, um, I guess, antidote that we've developed in Inspiral against the worst power dynamics. The one I mentioned about making it safe to talk about and then the second one is just taking turns and, and just being really clear, like, hey, I've, I've got energy on this and I'm going to lead. I need your support. And when I'm finished, you know, then it'll be your turn. That's a really good one. Yeah. And I think it's really useful because it doesn't imply that the hierarchy is flat. It implies that, you know, it's fluid and it changes over time and you can see how different people act in different roles and what they're maybe best suited for. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that um, that's really essential what people best suited for. I think um, in my framing, at least people don't know what they're good at. People don't know what their gifts and their qualities are. Um, you have to tell them, you know, you have to learn that from other people. You have to learn that from um, feedback and, and shared experience. And actually I think your gifts, change depending on the group that you're in um the like the, the thing that you've got to offer the most in that context that you don't actually know um but when when everyone can bring develop together a shared picture of what e each person's strengths are then that's when you unlock this like next level of collaboration where it's this is the dynamic subordination thing right like um we just understand that Tyson is the boss on this thing and I'm the boss on this other thing and you're the boss on that. And it's just really, you don't even have to talk about it because it's obvious um, that, but I think we only really get to that level when people have really got a chance to build a trust and, and to observe each other in different contexts and actually understand like, where are you strong and where do I, where do I have an authentic sense of trust in you? And that is just, yeah, I don't really think there's a kind of shortcut to that. Alpha, I want to throw it to you here for your question. Thanks, Richard. Uh, I just love your take. It's so fresh and uh, your take is just synthesizing so much knowledge. You can just see it. Um, uh, I love that we just did the power dynamic. I think you focus a lot on right relationship and this kind of clears the way for the emotional front. And then you bring in the economic, which I find very interesting. Um, so in traveling to various kibbutzes, which I think is a pretty interesting model, uh, there's a bunch of different models here and you know way better than I, but uh, one of the common tensions uh, it seems to be, how do we manage this egalitarian intention versus also on the other end, encouraging social innovation, which you know about that. Um, I just thought if you could maybe touch on that because you talk about the sameness versus fairness. Um, I've seen some models where it's been interesting where they initially try to have everyone have equal, you know, like UBI or universal basic income and that just failed miserably but then they still have that, but they allow people to have caps. Like you can make three or five times that UBI to encourage innovation, but you can't make a hundred decks. So there's this balance and harmony. Every community has to kind of decide for themselves. So based on your wisdom and experience, I'm just curious if you can riff on that. Yeah. I mean, this is another one where it's like, I don't know how much wisdom I've got versus how much opinion I have, you know, from my personality and my experiences. I, I grew up in a very egalitarian country, you know, and that, um, it's one of the top values, sort of national values of New Zealand people, it's egalitarianism. And so I'm um, intimately familiar with the shortcomings of that value when it becomes the top priority ahead of other things. Um, like 
the reason that I moved to Europe was partly because of the quality of conversation I can have here, uh, which I can't have in New Zealand because there's, well, I mean, I can, but I, I, I wasn't finding it in my um, immediate social network because this, this uh, constant pressure towards conformity and equality, um, yeah, it really comes, it, 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 there's a, it puts a friction on being distinct, you know, on, on being different in some way. Uh, there's, a, there's a kind of resistance there. I really feel like it's super uncool to have strong opinions in New Zealand. <laughs> um, and yeah, you can probably tell I'm very opinionated about stuff. So I, I think of egalitarianism as like one value in a constellation of values. And, and it's a really interesting um, deliberation to have in a group about what do we want to be equal with? You know, like what, what do we want everyone to have the same of? Um, and when I do that with groups, often the list is not that long. There's like, maybe everyone feels like they belong here and um, everyone knows that they're, they're gonna be respected and that when they, when they say something's important then people are gonna listen. Um, that everyone is entitled to dignity and you know, that they have creative freedom and there's some, there's some kind of like, um, yeah, baseline principles, but no one expects everyone to have the same expertise on every topic or, um, yeah, the same gifts or the same, even the same priority. I mean, that's a really common one in, in different community projects is that some, for no other reason, just that you've got other things happening in your life. Some people are going to have a way higher priority on this project than others, and therefore they're going to um, wind up having more influence. So, um, yeah, I just like to unpack the concept, I guess, a little more. Um, and what we have in, in, in the Inspiral context is way off the other end. It's way, it's very high on innovation. It's too high on innovation. It's all, it's like chaos, um, constant disruption, uh, always inventing the wheel over and over again, even though we had a perfectly good wheel six times already. Um, <laughs> so somehow we've incentivized for this huge amount of individualism and, and um, entrepreneurship and creativity and and I suspect there's probably some kind of harmony point in the middle, you know, there's some kind of balance point between those. Um, and that, I mean, that's, a, I think that's another general principle of governance is identifying what are some of these like meta polarities that uh, communities tend to fall one way or the other and not trying to solve it. You know, I don't think we're ever going to solve the balance between individual and collective, but we can stay alive to it and we can develop our own local language about um, how those polarity show up and we can make it okay for people to be on either end of that spectrum and we can um, take turns visiting the other end and run experiments and, and that sort of thing. We're not going to solve it, um, but, but we can kind of hold polarities together, you know, especially when we um, pay attention to the spaces between the polarities or like when we go orthogonal and we break the whole frame, that's, that's also a good one. <laughs> Uh, there's been some interesting conversation in the chat here. I just wanted to throw it to Jennifer if she uh, wants to kind of bring up a question or uh, uh, her thinking about the conversation so far. Uh, maybe she doesn't have a microphone going. Do you want okay. to summarize it? Yeah, I'll summarize it. Um, so I'm just got to scroll up here. So she says, why is assertiveness needed for all voices to be heard? And then the conversation after that, I, I'd responded, I'm not sure, but I think it's because time is a limited resources 
a resource and waiting for open space without indicating that you have something to say will keep you at the back of the queue. And then she says assertiveness, like a masculine energy. True leadership contains both feminine and masculine, including the desire to gather all inputs. Standing back provides a perspective that the leaning forward posture does not have. Do you want to comment, comment on this, Richard? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to try and keep a cork on a rant that I've got, but just on the masculine feminine thing, um, at least 80% of my leadership here is a woman. So I don't, I, I, I don't really, um, yeah, I don't really have this picture of like assertiveness being a masculine thing. Um, that's just my, yeah, just the people that come to mind for me, the ones that I, that I, that have taught me the most about leadership. Most of them are women. Most of them are witches actually, which is funny. Um, people think I'm joking when I'm saying that. I'm like, no, it's serious. <laughs> um, but the, the assertiveness, the, the owning your voice, you know, the stepping forward thing, um, Yeah, I mean we're 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 socialized, aren't we? I mean this comes this does this does certainly have a lot to do with gender and other cultural conditions that we're in, bank. Um, we receive really heavy training from an early age about whose voice is important and uh, what kind of expressions are valuable and which ones are not, uh, what kind of information is valuable and what's not. And there's, it's, it's nothing like a level playing field, right? Like we come in, we come into the game and, the, and it's really rigged. Um, it's really, the, the table is really stacked in different ways. Um, and so again, I'm not, um, I'm not really aiming for a group where everyone speaks the same amount. Like um, there are, like in a really small working team, absolutely, there's actually good science that shows um, equal turn-taking is an indicator of an effective collaboration. Like if people are actually sharing the speaking time equally at a small scale, for sure. But at a sort of community scale, when you've got dozens or a hundred people or something, there are going to be some people that are more talented at speaking um, or more comfortable. Like they have more at stake somehow that like, and that's not a problem to me. That's, that's, uh, there's also going to be some people that are better at engineering, you know, and there's going to be some people that are better at gardening and that's just, uh, that's a normal thing. So I'm not, I'm not, pursuing this uh, let's all make everyone the same but absolutely let's be aware of the inequities in the terrain that we inherited you know that we're not we're not sitting on level ground here but there's like big peaks and valleys and and find ways that we can uh, it, for me it's like what comes to mind is like can we do this gently um encourage the quieter voices to turn the volume up and encourage the louder voices to turn the volume down. And there's actually a subtle, again, this is like a relational thing, right? It's building trust with people and then being able to give them feedback and be like, Hey, do you know that? Um, I mean, I did this the other day. There's um, this thing, uh, what's it called? The progressive clock, which is just a really simple web app and it's got buttons and you can, it's a timer and you can use it to time like in a meeting, uh, how much time do men speak versus people who are not men. Um, and there's other categories like this. And I did it in a meeting and it was like, wow, okay. Uh, the men here are speaking, speaking on average three times more than the women. Okay. Um, but how do, you, how do you bring that information to light in a way that is actually supportive? Like that actually um, is like a moment of growth rather than like this, uh, you know, you shame the people who are talking too much and they get really defensive and triggered and they fall back into their like traumatized self. 
and you're also kind of shaming the people that are not speaking more because they're like oh i should really put myself out there more and like it's really easy for that uh intervention to go wrong and so i think of it as quite a tender process to um encourage people to to own their voice more and also to be more self-aware about how their contribution needs to be held in balance with other people like it's a really um gentle <laughs> massage i mean that's the way that i like to work maybe this is my new zealand this as well but um yeah, it, it helps. We use specific practices for this, you know? So like, I'm just thinking in the in the Lumio co-op, which was the first time that I uh, really got a chance to put these ideas in practice where we had, at one stage we had 16 people, you know? So it's a big enough team to really have some difficult dynamics. Um, and it was really obvious that there were some people that, I mean, we were equal co-owners of this business. So we have a, a really a high degree of stakeholding in the project. Uh, it's really obvious that some people's voice carried a lot more weight than others. And what, I'm one of those people, I was one of the founders, so I had a big voice. Um, and there's, I can keep stepping back and keep turning the volume down, but there's also, we need other people to be turning the volume up. And um, one of the practices that we do, I mean, I've seen this in the kind of ecosystem around here too, is just like, we always start every meeting with a check-in. And the check-in is usually like, how are you doing? You know, like, what's alive for you right now? And we go around and we hear from everyone. And it might be a 30 second answer. Um, but just that practice alone, uh, people getting into that habit of like, oh, when I'm in a meeting, I speak sometimes, you know, and people listen, they give me my attention and, and I'm um, getting used to what it's like to voicing myself and, and being received. And um, that's, a, that's a really micro example, but there are these kind of intentional practices that you can put in place that, that help to, yeah, give people the chance to flex that muscle and, and develop that confidence. And it's one of the it's one of the practices that I know that's the most reliable that it just works in any context for for helping to nudge the yeah to level off that playing field a little bit. Yeah, um, thanks for mentioning that. Actually, in one of our groups, we use this every time, uh, and it works really really well. And I'm now wondering why we don't use it in all of our groups. I think from now on we will be. <laughs> and then you, when you have a really large group, I mean, we've been doing this on Zoom lately. You can just put people in breakouts with four people and check in there and it still does some of the same work, even though you don't get the experience of hearing everyone. It's really simple, but it's, it's a super powerful practice. So if we don't want to... Um continue with this conversation topic, or if anyone else wants to jump in here, then I can go back to the questions in the, in the Google doc. So anyone feel free to unmute yourself and jump in here. If you've got something to say. Yeah. We're, like we're talking a lot about like the scale and, um, you know, different relationships stuff, but I'm curious, like if you've seen any examples in Inspiral communities and stuff for different values. So not just using money and even like other typical game, a value of like equity or ownership, or even out to more like um, negative externalities or, you know, the, the social capital and other kind of metrics we might use and how you kind of managed to, to use those. Um, we've done a little bit of experimentation with like time banking um, and uh, in the Inspiral context, it just didn't really take off, but I don't, I don't put much weight in that. It's like I said, we've reinvented the world with the wheel a hundred times. And so, um, we just do a lot of experiments and sometimes we don't really commit to something and, and test it out properly. Whereas I'm in um, other groups where we do 
time banking that really works, you know, that really makes a difference in a, uh, for people who don't know, time banking is basically a, um, a way of valuing everyone's time the same. And you can exchange like one hour of lawn mowing for one hour of babysitting or, you know, so, it's, and there's a, and there's a credit accounting system for like, okay, well, I, I gave Elf 10 hours of this and then Elf gave Tyson 10 hours of that and this kind of balancing thing. Um, so there's like a non-financial way of encouraging mutual exchange. And um, that's worked really well in some communities that I know. It didn't land for us. Um, but we haven't really, I mean, in the Inspiral context, we haven't really gone very far down that route. I mean, we're much more, um, yeah, we're kind of more, I don't know what the word is. We haven't done a lot of experimentation with different kinds of accounting and different value systems and things. It's more about um, the squishy vibes of like people loving each other. <laughs> I guess like it's maybe better to not quantify it in some ways and just keep uh, being aware of it in a way. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is another point where I'm really opinionated. I mean, David Graeber, who's a really fabulous anarchist anthropologist, late author, he wrote um, debt, the first 5,000 years, the history of debt. And one of the takeaway messages from that was kind of like, um, beware quantifying things and that um, having having an approximate sense of like I kind of owe you a favor is really healthy but um, when I owe you $9.73 that tends to cause a problem you know that there's something actually something in the um, uh, gift economies that have lasted for a really long time where they're not they're not accounting down to the last cent they, they, it's more of a sense of like I want to leave this transaction feeling like um, you owe me a favor and you just always are kind of in that constant process of like, yeah, we kind of basically owe me a favor and we don't, we don't have a really like tight way of accounting for that. Um, what I've noticed, cause we, we I mean, actually you, now that you mention it in Lumio, so it's a co-op, you know, we started like eight years ago or something and there's been a lot of time and energy put in. And so we've experimented with different ways of kind of like sweat equity, you know, like how do you account for people's time that hasn't been paid? Um, and we did tons of experimentation on that. And I found it really distracting, you know, just like this really long, complicated um, discussions with spreadsheets about like how much do we value this and that. And then what about when this happens? And you, you get this like um, escalating complicatedness of your agreements that are going to like trying to track all the different ways that people contributed. And then what about, well, there was more risk early on and, you know, it just get, it kind of gets more and more unwieldy for me. And um and it's also a, a kind of a, what they call a bike shedding problem. Like it's really easy to get people's attention onto it. Um, like everyone's got an opinion about money and about how they might get paid in the future. And so like, it's really easy to attract a lot of um, debate and, and conflict around it. Um, but it didn't really feel like it was being very generative. And, and what I've noticed another sort of general pattern is that like, it's, it's common that people will design a complicated set of agreements as a defense mechanism against having a difficult conversation. Yeah. Yeah. That super resonates with me. That was going to be my next question is, <laughs> you know, the, there is that tendency you've, you've brought up the uh, DGov conference we went to a while back. That was the ma major thing I noticed is this tendency for uh, ballooning bureaucracy uh, to take over where just leaning into conflict would be the better solution. And this kind of relates to Jennifer's 
sub, uh, subject earlier about assertiveness being a necessary component here, because we noticed as well in that conversation, the two kind of alpha males of the conversation were, were stealing the show most of the time. And then the, the response of the group was to create more sets of rules and to increase bureaucracy to prevent them from doing that. Whereas what they kind of needed was another aggressive male to come in and be like, guys, you're taking up the entire space. Please make room for someone else. Yeah, I mean, this is actually another, um, speaking of social capital, this is a game that I like to play. And if you're um, like an advanced practitioner, I really recommend finding your own version of this, which is arriving into a group context where you notice there's a bunch of dynamics that you think are really unhealthy and then making moves to shift it um, kind of uh, subversively. So like when it's, there's a bunch of men taking up too much space, um, you know, you've got to appreciate like why they're doing that and what's, usually it's like status jockeying, right? It's like, I want everyone to think that I'm the coolest guy in the room. I mean, that's what I'm doing when I'm, I mean, it's so great that you're interviewing me and I get the chance to just talk at length. It's like, <laughs> it's my happy place, right? Um, it's lucky I don't have to pretend to be a collaborator here. I can just talk and talk and talk and everyone can be like, wow, he's so smart. That's so great what he's saying. Um, but that's often what's happening when men are taking up too much space in the room is that they're, they all want to be doing what I'm doing right now and have that um, recognition in the group as the smartest or the coolest or the fastest or the whatever, you know? Um, and so I find it really fun to go into those groups and kind of outcompete them and then also subvert the terms of the engagement. So like kind of um, play the cool guy game, but then also kind of flip it and be really feminine or like just do stuff that really um, messes with the dynamic so that you're, I think of it almost like a currency exchange. It's like, okay, so you're bidding, you're doing this kind of bidding war of like who can be the most masculine. Uh, what about if I just flip that and turn it into the bidding war of who can be the most queer or the most unexpected or the most like the best listener or the most vulnerable or, you know, like that you can really flip it. And that's, that's a really fun game. <laughs> Turning yeah. on the trickster. <laughs> yeah. I put it out there into the community after a conversation, another one about gender the other day. Um, I put it out saying, um, what if we started a men's group? How would the conversation be different? What would we talk about that we wouldn't talk about with a group of women present? And there was this feeling of like free competitiveness, um, you know, not feeling like it. we've got to push it to this egalitarian space that, that men can just be men and do what they want. Um, so yeah, it was, it was interesting to think of that kind of natural tendency to want to be aggressive and competitive and that there's not necessarily something wrong with that aside from the problem of it squashes other voices, but like the, the game itself is actually fun and useful and, and potentially very good for males in that space, because it also, uh, kind of establishes this, um, it's like if you've ever been in a martial art or if you've ever been in a competition with, with someone else, uh, it's very flattening for the ego. You know, once you get your f face smashed a little bit with someone else, you're not going to expect that you're going to be the dominant person all the time. Yeah, I can hear how that works for some people. Like it's obviously, um, it's not the first time I've heard this, you know, that people want a men's only space, for instance, or a women's only space. It, I de it definitely doesn't, it's not how I kind of think, you know, like I said about the, um, leadership and masculinity and feminine, femininity and that sort of thing. It's like, um, I don't know if, if men are more in need of having their egos checked than women are, you know, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's not been my experience. 
Um, but people seem to be attracted to that way of working, so I don't want to. I don't want to shut it down. But just to say that it's like it's not really my reality. I think the way that I'm hearing it is that it's healthy to have different groups with different members and different social dynamics and different assumptions, because then the, how the natural kind of arising hierarchies and responsibilities and roles um, end up coming out is different. Yeah. So it's just like. You know, if you have different kind of marbles in, in each bag, like the pattern is going to come out differently or something. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and this is, again, it comes back to what I said about polarity management, right? Like there obviously is some kind of polarity uh, in the human experience, which people are pointing to when they talk about masculine and feminine. Like there's obviously something there. Um, and I think it's our job to like manage that skillfully and to be alive to the fact that like, there are differences and that in any case where you've got difference, you've got this, um, you've got a choice, whether that's going to be a difference as a source of conflict or a difference as a shared resource, you know, where like we can be greater than the sum of the parts because we've got these two complementary uh, different offerings, you know, that come together. Um, and I guess, yeah, there's a part of me that's actually reactive against any time I'm in a group and there's this proposition of like, oh, what if we make it into a men's group or, you know, um, I've spent a bit of time with um, like progressive activists in, in especially in North America. And it's really common in those spaces that they'll um, kind of chunk down into what they call caucuses. So there'll be like people of color caucus and the indigenous caucus and the women's caucus. And every time I've been in a group that did that, it, it felt to me like it was escalating the space. Between, it was like increasing the space between us. It was kind of escalating the tension. I know that those spaces are important, like that people are creating them because they feel like they're not, they're not safe in a more mixed group and they need a, a, a space where they feel safer to communicate with each other. Like I, I don't want to disqualify, like, like it's, people are doing it for a reason, for a good reason. Um, but it's very seldom that I've seen that done skillfully in a way where it's like, okay, yeah, these polarities exist. And also there's all these other, like I said, these, these orthogonal planes that we're also participating in, you know? So like I might be more masculine or more feminine, but what about... Um, yeah, all these other qualities that I have about my, I don't know, how much I like sports or um, what languages I speak or some of my cultural backgrounds where, you know, you start cutting across in all these different dimensions. And so if we are going to be like, yeah, for instance, creating these separate spaces, I'm always curious about, okay, yeah, good. But then how do we, how do we bring people back into a, into a more integrated whole? And I've seen that occasionally and it's been really, really excellent. So like there's a, um, uh, a communication, like a facilitation technique called a fishbowl. Um, and there's different variations on fishbowl. And I think like 90% of them, I've, I've had a really bad time, but there's the 10% that's been really good where it's been used specifically for managing polarity where you have, um, so like in the, there's one specific instance that I have in mind where it was a conversation about gender and power. And, and it was like, the, the sort of opening question was something about, you know, has your, do you think your gender has influenced your experience of the workplace? Something like that, you know, so like a, a really uh, energetic question. And we started with a circle where um, there was only women in the inner circle, women and non-binary people in the inner circle, and then men on the outside witnessing, and the women were speaking to each other, and the men were just there to listen. And then we flipped the fishbowl, so then the men went into the middle, and then everyone else went out, and there was another conversation, and then the third round was a mix of people coming and going, and and we broke down that and that worked really, really well where we're saying, look, there are two ends of a, of a spectrum here. Um, and also there's this nuance and this um, extra dimensionality. 
That was one of my rants. Pop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, th the thing that interests me about this subject is it relates to travel, actually. You know, like we've traveled a lot. And when you go into a new culture, you don't want to just jump in and dominate with your way of viewing the world and like expect the cultural norms of where you're from to apply there. There's a, a huge degree of listening that needs to take place uh, for every new place that you go to. And so there's, there's kind of this contextual listening that needs to happen in the different types of environments. And that's why I think it's useful to have these Actually, the way you brought it up was probably the most interesting to have small spaces where other, you know, small groups get to discuss and everyone gets to listen, but then to switch it up and then integrate everyone together. That seems super helpful. And that's, I mean, when it comes to gender, I think probably I haven't looked so um, deeply into race, but I think it's probably the same. Um, what's in short supply is listening. That's really yeah. like um, every time I've had a constructive and generative conversation around gender and power dynamics what's made the difference is that people have listened to each other's trauma and their grief and they've actually just listened you know and, and been able to stay present to hold it to not jump to fixing it or to being defensive or to like yeah you know <laughs> doing that really cringy thing of like i apologize on behalf of all men like <laughs> good on you bro um like when we're able to just genuinely listen and, and stay in that space of emotional connectedness and be like, I'm here with you. I hear how much that sucks. Like that seems to be the, the threshold that we, that opens up a new territory and that we can get out of like um, the old recycled polarized dynamic. Um, and that's so easy to say that, right. But how hard it is in practice. Like when someone's saying something where I feel scolded or shamed or like put down, like, pretty hard for me to just listen like there's so many like well i've got so much to say about this and i need you to think that i'm great and i don't want to be implicated in um you know these negative stories that you're telling like there's so much momentum in me that wants to um interrupt that rather than just like hey just stay present yeah speaking of making space i we'd like to make space for for some women to speak if they would like to just anybody who feels like they have something to say Yeah, I had made a comment earlier um, because I feel like there are times when women kind of get in sort of like this victim mentality, like like that men kind of take over and they're um, and that's just kind of like the way that we've been conditioned and kind of our society. And um, someone had made a comment that there are a lot of men in this space, but not many women, which is great. But dot 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 and. To me, it's just like women, that doesn't mean that women aren't welcome here. You know, like all women are welcome here. <laughs> you know, this like conversation just might not be um, as high of an interest point to them or whatever the reason that it may be that there is like a skewed ratio of men to women. And I kind of get triggered by this like masculine and feminine energy too, because I think that there's so much um, desire to want to label something as like, masculine feminine as opposed to really just like tuning into what's true and expressing from that like that focal point 
And um, for me, like, I've really been learning a lot that like, especially in my partnership where I've at times tried more to be like my partner, because I think that that's what he wants when in reality, what he wants more is for me to be more like me, to be more in my feminine muse type of archetype in that energy. And um, so I'm just really trying to root down in that. Like, you know, like it's not my job as a woman to be more like a man. <laughs> it's like, that, that's not my job as a woman. My job as a woman is to, to, thrive in the power as a woman because like that that balance is so crucial and that doesn't mean that there aren't times in my life where I do embody more masculine energy you know like I grew up as a tomboy where I pretty much wanted to be a boy for most of my life and I've been on this journey the last five years of what it really means to soften into feminine energy and like the power that that holds and what kind of inspiration that brings to men as well and kind of pulls like the softness out of them too you know and so um yeah I've really just uh been enjoying that journey of what it means to be a woman and like really rooting down in my strengths as that and knowing that my strengths as a woman just because I like to cook and like have people over for dinner and like have these beautiful experiences like that's equally as important as a man who wants to go out and like chop wood and carry water and like you know do all these like more masculine things um so that's just something that's been on my mind and really just wanting to encourage women to uh like love that they're women and not try to like be in like this more masculine world and trying to conform more to being like a man because that's why that there are two different types of energies because it takes both you know and like this constant dance of exchanging energy and being in synergy and like the beautiful like what what beauty comes of that so complete thank you thank you I would like to make space for anybody uh, who hasn't spoken yet that has something that's really alive for them that would like to speak. All right, I'll hop in. Uh, basically, I wanted to know uh, what embodied uh, practices do you have experience with, with uh doing with groups because talking is great and all but in my experience not everybody has the ability to listen and like, it's not necessarily a bad thing but like certain people have stronger abilities to listen than others but with embodied practices certain people can get uh, I guess certain concepts that way easier than actually talking that's a great question. Thank you. Um, it's definitely not my strong suit. Um, I only, only recently discovered that I have a body. Um, thanks to mostly to like Vipassana meditation and then um, discovering that music actually has all these kind of like influences on my physical system and I enjoy them. Um, so that's been cool. Not my strong suit, but I have got some things to say. And I mean, the easy, obvious one is eating food, I think. Um, Again, I mean, there's a reason I talk about hospitality and like, it's good that Raya brought it in too. Like, um, eating a meal together is a real easy way to accelerate trust, um, a really easy way. And not just eating, but also preparing and cleaning up afterwards. Like, 
the the practical I mentioned about um, yeah how people have distinctive strengths and um, when it comes to like cooking breakfast together it's really easy to see whose strengths are what you know like I'll be the one making the eggs I'm like really excellent at making eggs and then someone else will be um, beside me making something else and and that's a really effortless uh, you know it's like an ancient technology and and we've got that on tap it's really basic really good um slightly more nerdy i guess is um i think there's this whole general field around constellations and i've never gone deeply into constellations as a practice but um i've kind of extracted a little thing from it which is basically the idea that this two-dimensional space of the floor of this room um there might be some meaning in we can create a kind of grid of meaning here you know so like I mean, the really, really basic example is like, um, you know, where do you come from in the world? If you're from the Northern Hemisphere, you know, go to that side of the room. If you're from the Southern Hemisphere, go there, you know, like where you sort of like invent quickly a spectrum of uh, where we're going to move. We do a lot of practices around that. So it might be, we'll do questions around, um, yeah, how how deeply engaged do you feel in this community or something like that? And people will move. Um, and we do a lot of questions that there's something about physically moving that, um, everyone can participate simultaneously. You know, you're not waiting to take your turn to speak. Um, you can invent this field of meaning where it's like, um, this means I'm a you know newbie volunteer and that means I'm a founder who's super committed. And then once that shared field of meaning is there, you can say, okay, now switch places and see how it feels. You know, so go move to the other half of the room. I'm going to ask you another question and now just imagine yourself in that. Um, and somehow that really unlocks people. It's really efficient. Um, and then the more sophisticated answer than that is like I mentioned about growing up alongside indigenous people, the most clear example that I have in mind, as soon as you asked about embodied practice was, um, what it's like when there's a, there's a ceremony called the porphyry and that's like, um, it's about a, I mean, when I say it's about, this is me as a, you know, descendant of, of colonists trying to describe what I'm seeing in an indigenous culture. I don't know what it's about. What, what I, the story I took home from it was that it's about um, one group of people who are the custodians of the land and then another group of people who are visiting temporarily. And the process of bringing those two groups together, um, you know, like maybe you're going to have a conference or something like the, the, the most meaningful porphyry that I was involved in was we were doing an art project uh, for a month. And so then the local tribe um, wanted to invite us in so that they could kind of do their host responsibility, you know, and show us, show us the land that we're on and, and what were the expectations of being on that land. And the process took like three or four hours. And there's a real, it was obviously deeply encoded with meaning at each stage of that journey. And it was all embodied, you know, like you start um, not just embodied in the physical body, but also embodied in the architecture, like in the, um, the way the meeting house is designed and the, and the grounds are designed, like you start, um, with the two groups very far apart. And one of the first gestures, well, first the women will call to each other and they'll get a little closer. And then one of the first gestures is the challenge, which is like my reading on that is like, hey, we could hurt each other. You know, we're, diff we're different. We come from different places. We have different values and there's a risk here. Um, we're armed, we're dangerous, we're strong. Uh, we're vicious if we need to be. And then, um, there's this progressive coming closer and closer together and, and, and a kind of disarming in a way. And they're like, okay, well, let's acknowledge that there is the potential here for conflict and strife and 
let's commit to peace. And the way that we commit to peace is recalling favors that have been done to us in the past. That's part of the story and, and, and tracing back genealogy to go like, oh, right. Yeah. So you're my, you know, seventh cousin, three times removed. Um, and storytelling song, uh, there's the moment of touching noses together and sharing a breath, you know, to be reminded of the commons uh, that we are embodied in. So that you're literally nose to nose with someone, probably not right now in COVID times. Um, and it com the culmination is you have a good meal together, you know, like you just have a big feast. And then at the end of that, we were welcomed as um, we were told, you know, like now, now this is your place and your family is welcome here anytime. Um, that to me felt like, you know, as someone who's a group process nerd, that felt like, okay, you know, this is the result of uh, iterating over many, many generations and uh, adapting to local context and coming up with a set of practices that actually works, that actually attends to the risk of groups coming together and then sets them up to have a productive encounter where they're like ready to give, you know, that they, they're, in a, they're in a spirit of abundance and they also understand the power, you know, they understand the expectations on them and the um, responsibilities and, and the, like the gift it is to be walking on that land. Um, that to me was just that, okay, so I can be nerding out about all the group process in the world, but it's probably a multi-generational project. And um, so, yeah, that's a long way of saying I'm looking forward to learning from other people that have much more confidence in the embodied side of things than I do. And in the meantime, I'll just um, keep talking about it while they show me how. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thanks. That sounds like a really great ceremony to do. And um, I'm definitely going to look that up and, and see how we can incorporate it into what we're doing. Um, a couple of years ago, we were part of a cacao ceremony that followed an ayahuasca ceremony. And there was a, a process that was uh, kind of a group process, but it was really a pair process. So people had to um, get into pairs with somebody that they never met before and knew nothing about. And then um, we sat face to face and gazed into each other's eyes and held hands and uh, one, we would take turns, you know, for five minutes, one person had to talk and the other person had to listen, not offer solutions, not do anything, just listen. And uh, so it's the series of questions that we, we were posed with were, you know, kind of designed to uh, get down to the really vulnerable stuff. Things like, you know, what, what are your highest hopes and dreams in life? Um, or like, what is the worst, most painful thing you've ever experienced? Or like, what is your biggest regret in life? things like that. And um, it was a really, really great uh, opening exercise. And then, you know, after that, we got into a group and people shared whatever they wanted to share in a group. And uh, I thought that was really powerful. And, and But, you know, it, it's definitely um, kind of throwing people right into the deep end of things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that eye gazing is really powerful, right? Um, there's a lot of practices around that. I was, I think, 24, 25, when um, my girlfriend at the time uh, made it known to me that I never look anyone in the eye, including her. And that um, this is what I mean about being disembodied, right? Like there's, um, yeah, it's a really powerful technology. There's something I think that's going right down to the brainstem about having eye contact. And um, it's been, yeah, I've been building myself up to it. I find it really intense, especially um, when you're describing this, yeah, with these vulnerable questions. We did that once on MDMA. That was really great. I can recommend that. Um, it seems to, yeah, there's something about that sustained contact, right? And then actually exploring 
uh, emotional depth uh, that for me felt like it rewired something really deep down. I kind of want to bring something up that I feel is probably going to be uncomfortable for the group, but I, I feel compelled. Um, you know, you know, this, this gender conversation is not, not fun and it, it requires a lot of humility on everyone's part. Um, it leads me into a question. I'm going to start with a question, but I need to elaborate on this. What, what do you do with the kind of unacceptable behaviors in a group? Um, do you eject the person? Do you um, set up better systems for feedback? And the example I'm going to give is um, my, my background has been in sports and uh, also in arts and music, but I've like, I live in a sports capital um, where they do all the tournaments and stuff for, for Canada. And um, so there's a lot of kind of like masculine competitive types of people. And those were my friend groups when I grew up. And I noticed this problem of like, as our societies become more kind of egalitarian, that those aggressive males tend to get pushed out of groups um, because people don't want, like we've been talking about in, in this conversation, people don't want to give that more aggressive assertive feedback to them. They'd rather be like, this guy's a dick. Let's get him out of the group. Um, don't want to deal with him. So there's kind of this problem of like, you know, over time, I've noticed a lot of those males that I grew up with, um, there's, a, there's a very high suicide rate. Um, and I've lost, I, I can count probably on two hands now, um, how many people I've known, all males to suicide. And so there's this, this issue that's really close to my heart here about um, how do we deal with those types of energies? We just gave a talk two weeks ago about what to do with those deplorable <laughs> kind of personality traits. And what I tried to bring attention to was that it's more of a recent thing for us to view those masculine traits as negative, that they, were, they had more utility in, in kind of different times. And now there's less utility for them and we don't like them. And so what we end up doing a lot is to kind of push them out. Um, so I want to address that. And, and when we talk about like the different energies, like the masculine and feminine energy, and, and there's kind of this pushback to say, well, no, women should be women, men, or do be women how they want to be women and not have to adopt masculine traits. But there is this need with those types of males to give feedback. And often the way you have to give feedback is with a little bit of assert assertiveness and aggression. And that's not unwelcome to the, to the male or to the person who's, who, who is kind of in that more aggressive, whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm, I don't have the right vocabulary for it, but it's not unwelcome. And there's like a degree of lean in to that conflict that is super health, healthy and one of the few ways that you can give feedback to a person like that. So what I'm saying is like, all sides can benefit from a listening approach and a more hu having more humility, managing the ego, not trying to appear the smartest person in the room, but we can also benefit from a little bit of that kind of like conflict resolution through leaning in. And that's not what I'm seeing when we're looking out there at, at kind of the way we're approaching conversations in, in the public space. Really, it's, I'm seeing a lot of like deplatforming and ejecting of the deplorable behaviors. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing that, I'm guessing, uh, in public. And I think that's a, one of the pieces here is there's a real confusion around public and private. And um, uh, 
the, you know, like there's a lot of discussion around the culture war and this is part of it, right? Like people, people being deplatformed or excuse, uh, excluded and so on. Um, and, and I see a kind of culture war playing out in public spaces like Twitter, which doesn't feel uh, like it represents anything that I have in my private groups. Well, not very much, you know, that I can see traces of it, but actually I think there are really different dynamics playing in, in small private groups than they're in public. And that um, it's easier to kind of get those muddled. Um, and how do we do boundary setting in a collective way um, that reflects a set of values where we're trying to um, make space for people's development and growth and not jump to exclusion and not, um, you know, and be sensitive to, to the ways in which corrective feedback can be shaming, can actually exacerbate the problem. Like, yeah. Um, the first question was about principles. I guess one of my principles is called consent. And that's, um, again, it's like this thing about domination and partnership. Like, we're really familiar with accountability processes, which are structured in the domination mode of like, your parents make the rules and like, I mean, when I grew up, my parents used to spank me quite a lot when I would break the rules, you know, and that was like how they kept me in line. And so I had this idea of accountability as you do what you're told. And um, if you don't, then you're going to get rapid negative feedback. <laughs> uh, in, my, in my case, physically embodied. And um, I didn't really have a say in that, you know, like I didn't get a, it was like, my house, my rules, and maybe at one point I get, you know, you'll graduate, you'll move out, and then you'll be the one in charge. Like that, I think that's the model that a lot of us have in mind when we start thinking about accountability and um, discipline and these kind of things. And that's the domination mode, you know, that's like someone who just has more power than someone else and they get to set the terms. Um, and I think there's a partnership mode that, that can take its place. And so that looks like um, accountability by consent, you know, by... Um, Part of it, I mean, I want to I wanna own, I'm a degenerate, you know, like that um, trying to trying to not disown that part of myself. <laughs> I think we just got our YouTube clip. Yeah, good. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, these are my, my most trusted people are the ones that can admit their own degeneracy and, and, um, and are not, you know, like when I'm, trying to pre present to you this kind of pure, saintly, um, finished product, you know, this character who's not in development anymore, but it's just finished and complete. Like, then if I'm not willing to accept the parts of myself that are in development, I'm not gonna accept yours, right? Like if I see something in you that makes me go like, oh, that reminds me of that part of myself that I'm ashamed of, I'm gonna get really defensive and reactive. So I think part of the equation is to be able to be honest about our own um, parts that we're not so proud of. Um, but the consent piece is, so it's like a modeling thing, you know, and just being real and be like, yeah, this is me. This is like, I'm a status jockey. That's part of my shit. Um, it's kind of annoying. And um, the consent piece is like, so I just had a, a new working group in Inspiral. Working group is like five people. We've got a specific mandate. We're working on a little domain of, you know, some governance challenges. And we started the, this new group by setting expectations, sort of like um, trying to get to know each other and set our, name our needs and our requests of each other. And my request was, hey, look, 
I know I've got a really strong, uh, you know, benevolent dictator vibe that comes out of me very easily because I think I'm a, you know, like I'm recognized in the world as having some kind of expertise. And so it means I often think I've got all the answers and I'm brilliant. And like, it's really easy for that side to come out of me in a, in an overbalanced way. And I need you, like, I can't manage that on my own. I need support with that. So like when I'm taking up too much space or I'm just like pushing too hard, I, I can't fix that. You're going to have to help me. I, I can't do it on my own, but I can do it with you. Um, and so you have my enthusiastic consent to give me feedback when you feel like I'm pushing too hard, taking up too much space, not listening enough, not being curious. Um, and so then the kind of accountability that I get feels like support. It feels like these are my peers who are helping me grow towards my goals. You know, it's like, this is where I want to be. This is who the kind of character that I want to become is one that's a better listener, that makes more space for others, that's like more curious, that's more ready to learn. Um, and that's supporting me to do that. And it's not like some external authority has come along and said, Rich, you talk too much. You should be ashamed. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's my, um, it's, it's come from me. And so um, part of what we do is try and try and create a context where everyone is in development and they're, they're actually transparent with each other about their developmental goals. And they're inviting feedback on specific things. Like this is a thing that I struggle with. And this is the kind of feedback that supports me. Like, if I cross this line, this is how you can, you can help me. Um, that's kind of the best case is to be in a developmental culture. Um, and there's a lot of groups that aren't able to get to there immediately. So at least to be able to have um, co, this is one place where I really use consensus. Uh, I mean, I'm not a huge fan of consensus, but when it comes to setting the community boundaries, that's one where I absolutely, I'm kind of a fundamentalist about it. Like we should be able to agree on these behaviors are strictly excluded. And um, if you get close to this boundary, you'll receive some loving feedback, some compassionate support. But if you cross that boundary, you are going to be removed instantaneously, you know, like with clinical precision. Um, and I think it's really, it's essential to be able to have these kind of um, clean boundaries to create a safe, you know, a safe community. And it's just, yeah, doing that in a way that doesn't exacerbate the problem, you know, like you said, that it doesn't fuel these guys being continuously excluded and excluded until they feel like there's no place for them left on earth. I appreciate um, everyone's willingness to stick around for this conversation too. It's, it's not always an easy subject and I definitely appreciate your thoughts on this, mm. Richard. Yeah, I just wanted to um, dig into this a little more um, about boundary setting and exclusion because there are certain behaviors that are absolutely harmful and um, especially in, in communities, you know, it can take one person to poison the whole well. And some people, um, you know, we all make mistakes, obviously, but when there's a, a recurring problem, then action needs to be taken. And, you know, one person can break the whole community. So, yeah, I wanted to uh, kind of poke a little more at this. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with, with exclusion and, and hard boundaries around... Yeah bad actors yeah well i just want to throw in something quick here um i do think like this is kind of where the men's group thing comes in for me um because there are, are examples of different kind of aggressive aggressive negotiations i've gone into for, in business with like verifiable psychopaths where that conversation would be incredibly uh triggering and difficult for anyone like swearing and name calling and total aggression that resulted in an agreement and 
you know, video games and beers after and, and was like fun at the end of it, but would have been disturbing to watch. Um, so there's this level of like, uh, you know, set and setting, I suppose, for this kind of thing, where, where is it appropriate? And where is it not? And if we don't have those types of groups that allow for that, then we may not know where to toe the line of safety. Um, because some people might not feel safe when others do. I wanted to comment on that. And there's kind of the other side of this where that can also become problematic because mm -hmm. we know about kind of boys clubs and yeah. how existing hierarchies can perpetuate uh, abuse behaviors where, you know, men in positions of power um, get away with horrible abuse because everybody else is, you know, subordinate to them in the hierarchy and they're just um, enabling those abuses to continue. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> um, so I'm not like um, fully committed to these linear developmental stage theories like spiral dynamics. Um, you know, this idea that there are specific stages and you have to go through them in sequence. Like I'm not committed to the idea, but sometimes it's useful to think about it. It's a useful lens that I put on sometimes. Um, and there's this idea of green being a stage, which is all about inclusion, you know, and in that um, when people are coming from that place, the idea that we'd exclude someone is like really horrifying. And that, um, and that's triggering on its own, just to even think about like, if the question is on what grounds would we exclude someone, there's already some people going like, we shouldn't exclude anyone. I mean, that's the problem with the world is too much exclusion. We should be including everyone. Um, and that was certainly me when we, you know, my, I got into this through the Occupy movement. And um, at the start of Occupy, I was fully committed to 100% inclusion. And we brought in some people that were really, um, how do I say this with respect, like, just really extreme characters, you know, like really extreme, really off the deep end of, out of outside of social norms for lots of, on lots of different dimensions. Um, and, and I thought that we could summon enough love and compassion to just hold them, you know, like they've been excluded everywhere they go. The reason that this guy is like kind of a monster is because he's, he's suffered so badly. We'll be the ones that are going to bring up so much love and compassion. We're going to hold him. That's really what I thought. And there was a bunch of us that thought we could, we could smother, smother him with hugs, you know? Um, and then at some point it's like the dude pulls out a long, sharp knife in the middle of a, a, a deliberation, you know, and starts threatening people. And then there's like, he's extorting people. And like, there's a threshold, right? You've got to cross at some point. So the question is not like, um, can we include everyone? It's like, on what grounds would we exclude someone? Because, okay, I can say, I'm going to try, I'm going to bring my best, most loving, compassionate self, and I'm going to do everything I can to in include this guy. But there's like, all the other people that have already been excluded by his presence, you know, like um, when, when you include some people, you're excluding all these other people. So you've got, you've just got to design like what's the exclusion criteria. And that's, um, yeah, that's, it's kind of like the pointiest part, I think of, of community governance design. It's like oh, oh, on what are the, on what are the grounds and how we're going to approach this with compassion um, and where we're actually, yeah, we're prioritizing safety. Like in the groups that I've been in, I've been, um, yeah, you know, like I'm, 
I'm pretty schooled in, you know, like I said, a lot of my leadership heroes are women. A lot of it is, a lot of what I've learned about power comes from feminists. I really do think that there's a problem in the world about uh, imbalance of power in favor of men at the expense of women and other people of other genders. And so I'm actually like, if we're going to design a system that's imperfect, I'd rather tip the balance against the men than in favor of them. If we're going to have to do, you know, like if we have to choose one or the other, I think it's, it makes sense in the context that I've been in. Um, but yeah, if there's a way that you can um, create the context where people are held, you know, that they're embraced as they are and that they have an opportunity to experience some healing, like awesome, do that. Um, but just don't make it everyone's job, you know, like make that, like you say, an isolated space, like there's some bounded context where that, where that kind of interaction can happen. I think that um, that's really noble if you can do it. What did you say the ratio was for people who can hold someone in, you know, through their learning? It was like one person to 25 or something. Yeah, it wasn't me. I think it was Mike New in one oh. of our other groups. Um, he studied with a lot of indigenous people in Australia. And I think he brought that up that you need to have 20 or more healthy, emotionally healthy, stable people to hold one unstable person. It might have been James Earl, like I'm not sure who brought that up, but yeah, the ratio is, is really disproportionate. Yeah. There's another part of this, and, and we've covered this a lot before, the difference between embodied knowing and kind of um, procedural or, or propositional knowing. Um, this idea of like, where is that red line that's not to be crossed? Do we know that? Do we have that written on paper? Is that a rule that everyone agrees to? Or is that something we feel out in the moment and kind of flag as it's happening? Well, this is a, it's like the greatest hits of all my opinionated rants. Um, <laughs> I really don't um, have a lot of respect for the written word. Um, like I think it's, I think it's kind of uh, causes a lot of trouble when we're trying to do collaborative governance actually. And, and I'm pretty big on the vibe uh, you know, like the, the nuanced, the subtle, the um, discretionary, the temporary, the, the momentary, like the feeling it out minute by minute kind of thing. The spirit of the law rather than the, than the letter of the law. Like I'm, I'm pretty strong on that spirit side. Um, the practical implication of this is like I talked about the difference between commitment and participation. At Inspiral, we have two classes of, of membership. We have a contributor and a member. And there's like maybe 200 contributors and about 30 members. And the members are like shareholders in the foundation. They have the ultimate responsibility. They have an extra, um, they have extra rights and extra responsibilities. And they have um, earned that position by some kind of unspoken subtle thing of like winning the trust of the other members. So like I'm a member and I can invite anyone in as a contributor and it's, I have complete autonomy to do that. I say, Hey Tyson, you seem like you'd be a good fit here. Come on in. And I don't need anyone's permission, but for Tyson to become a member, then he needs all the other members to get to know him and trust him and invite him in. So that's like a really high trust threshold. And one of the things that membership group does is a kind of a immune system for the culture. So we use our spidey senses to just like, um, notice when we see interactions that we think are concerning and, and get in front of them. So like this is well before someone gets at, towards a boundary. It's just like this could be the slightest little interaction where you say, Oh, I, that really signaled something about that person's character that I find really troubling. And I'm going to 
go in there and get to know this person more and build a relationship with them and get more context about who they are and what's going on. Um, and if I, if necessary, I'll bring it to the attention of the other members and say, Hey, had this interaction. Can you just, you know, keep your eyes open. And there's what we call positive gossip where we're like, we're talking about someone who's not there, but we're doing it in integrity and with a, um, you know, an attitude of service to the, to the collective. Um, and that's not accountable, you know, by any kind of written legislation. That's, um, there'd be people in Inspiral that would hear me say this and they'd be like, there's what now? <laughs> you know, like this is not, this is not like a sort of transparent um, official governance policy or something like this is the subtle, how we do things around here that I think is kind of an essential ingredient of, um, yeah, it's like the, the collective body has an immune system. Love this. Mm -hmm. I unfortunately we're we're just over time I'd love to keep going with this um but we've got to wrap up I want to ask the group if we were to do a big kind of panel um session with other people in this space who would you like to invite um to be alongside Richard on governance collective decision we could continue this conversation we could we could pick some topics but I'm just kind of leaving it open mm. people who come to mind would be Nora Bateson Tyson Yonko Porta. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Any ideas? Please drop them in the chat or in the doc. Yeah. You can also jump into the community and we can continue this discussion there. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks, Tyson. Uh, if you want to jump into the community, it's futurethinkers.org slash friend. And um, you get yeah. three months free. Yeah. And then I think that's pretty much it. That's all we've got time for today. So thank you everyone for your contributions. Um, thank you, Richard, for joining us. Um, I, I really feel good. I really appreciate that we can have these types of conversations and I don't seem to have noticed anyone get super triggered though we did lose a couple of people. <laughs> so um, yeah, I would love to continue this at some point in the future too. Mm -hmm. So thank you everyone. Um I'm really grateful for the invitation. I, I heard your conversation on the Stoa recently about what you're doing. And I felt like just the, the responses you both gave to the questions that were coming your way made me very optimistic about what you're doing. You know, I, I work with a lot of dysfunctional groups and um, you didn't press any of my warning. None of the warning lights went off on my dashboard when I was listening to that conversation. And I really, um, yeah, I've got a lot of enthusiasm and affection for what you're doing. So I'm really happy to be throwing my ingredients into the soup. So long as everyone remembers the disclaimer I gave at the start, they're like half of it is really brilliant and the other half is really distorted and we don't know which half is which. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. If you like this content, you might want to check out our seven ways to adapt to the future guidebook. Get it for free at futurethinkers.org slash sign up. You might also want to check out our Future Thinkers membership area. We have courses there to help you adapt to the changing world, build resilience, upgrade culture and society and create meaning and purpose in your life. As well, you'll get access to our community, all of our unreleased content, private Zoom calls, live Q&As with guests, workshops and events, and more. Just go to members.futurethinkers.org. And if you enjoyed this video, please like, share, and comment. It really helps out our show more than you know. And if you want more like it, then subscribe and hit that bell icon to be notified of new videos. See you next time.